0: Well, hey, if you guys are familiar at all of Scottsdale Bible Church, Bible is our middle name. So what we do, as we talked about last week, is that we engage God in worship, which is what we've been doing for the last half hour or so. And now we're going to turn to His Word. And we're in the middle of a series on on values, our church's values, the things that we hold dear. And so why don't you bow with me right now and let's pray, and then we're going to dive right into His Word. Father, I thank you for your truth and for the grace and love that you have shown us and how all of that has come to us in your son, Jesus Christ. Uh, Father, what makes us Christians, what makes us followers of you, the one true God, is that you have come to us in Jesus and we've embraced him as Savior and as Lord. And now in the power of the Holy Spirit, we want to walk with you each and every day, each moment of each day. So, God, as we parse out what makes our church uh, special as a, follow, as a group, group of followers of you, I pray that you would give us wisdom. May we be attuned to what your word has to say to us now. And, uh, Lord, may we even walk out a bit different than when we came in, at least more equipped for the week ahead. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So I've said it before, and I'll just say it again, that God has a dream for his church, and it's a dream that he hopes every day will become more of a reality. I mean, it's weird to think that God would be a God who dreams and envisions things. But when you read the Bible closely and you look at what he says about you and me, whom he labels the church, anybody who believes in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you realize that God has a preferred future, a vision, a dream of what he'd like us to be. And when you look closely at the scriptures, you realize that God actually dreams in two simultaneous pictures when he thinks about us, the church. The first picture is found in Romans chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, which we'll look at in just a second. But God dreams about a functional body of Jesus Christ with Jesus as the head and you and I as the body. That's the word picture. So just like a physical body that has a head and then has all the different parts of the body that the head tells what to do, like feet and hands and arms and toes and things like that. God says that you and I are the body of Jesus Christ, his physical representation here on planet earth, and that we do the kingdom work that makes his kingdom functional and operate here on earth. So if you've read the scriptures, you know that we serve, we administrate, we teach, we help others, we evangelize, we give generously. We do all the things that are the gifts of the Holy Spirit so that we might be God's hands and feet, even his voice at times here on earth. He dreams that we will be a functional body of jesus christ then you turn the page in the scriptures and go over the book of ephesians specifically chapter five and you realize that god dreams a second dream about the church and this one is that we would be the beautiful bride of christ he wants us to be the bride of christ And so you can picture it, a beautiful church, all decked out. It's the wedding day. There's lots of observers. Everything looks beautiful. There's a groom waiting up at the front of the altar, and in walks the bride, beaming and radiant as only a bride can be. And she comes down the aisle to meet her groom, and a wedding is about to take place. With that picture in mind, the scriptures say that that Jesus longs for us to be the bride and He is the groom and that someday we are going to be wed to Him for all of eternity. And He longs for us to rise up and be the beautiful bride that He already declares us to be. He longs for us to be holy and righteous, good and faithful having love and fidelity and faithfulness behind us in everything that we do. He calls us to be a beautiful bride. And so let's let the Scriptures confirm this. Look up here on the screen. Romans 12, verses 4 and 5 tell us about the body. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, here it is, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. So, God's dreaming about a functional body of Christ. And then Ephesians 5:31 and 32, as it's bouncing off of Genesis chapter 2, with a passage that all of you are familiar with, says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying it refers to Christ and the church. So, there it is. But we're his bride. And then Revelation confirms this as well, in which someday we're going to be married as a church to Jesus Christ for all of eternity. And so don't miss this. This is what God's dreaming about when he thinks of us as a church, that we might be the functional body of Christ, the beautiful bride of Christ. And that's what he longs for us to be. And obviously my point is, is that if this is what God is dreaming about for you and me then this must be what we dream about and shoot for as well. And what you need to know is that that's what Scottsdale Bible Church is all about. If you were to look at our vision statement, our mission statement, even the values that drive us and all that we do, it all leads toward this end. Our vision is to be a community of faith marked by an unwavering faith in Jesus Christ and an unconditional love for each other. That's our vision. Our mission is to win people to faith in Christ, build them up in their faith, and then send them back out Monday through Saturday into our spheres of influence to be winners and builders ourselves. And then in this series, we're looking at our values, values like transformational Bible teaching and engaging worship. And as we're going to see today, authentic community. Next week, service-based outreach. All of these things are simply designed so that we might become more functional and more beautiful and thereby more usable in the hands of God. So that you maybe look at it this way we're helping Him a little bit with His dream, but we're helping Him become what He wants us to become. And so last week, as Troy mentioned, we talked about transformational Bible teaching and engaging worship. And we simply learned, and hopefully this was. Nudging for some of us that when we gather here on Sundays and when our venue gathers on Sundays here, we do so only in the hopes that His Word might change us and that we might engage Him together as a community in worship, which is why it's so important that we give our hearts to Him when we sing those songs. And it's why it's so important that His Word it penetrates our minds and our hearts so that He might change us from the inside out. And today, We're going to shift to the third gear here and look at our third driving value, that of authentic community, simply put, that real relationships is what God is after in our lives because he knows that if you and I can develop real relationships, it'll, it'll lead to authentic community that'll give us joy, him glory, and make us more usable as the body and bride of Christ that he wants us to be. And so the question I want us to wrestle with right now is what is it going to take? But what's it going to take for you and I to have the kind of relationships with each other And then those important relationships in your sphere of influence, whether it be your your spouse or your kids or your good friends, what makes those real in such a way that they can become God-honoring and really give you joy? That kind of iron sharpens iron, as the Proverbs say. But what are the components of a real relationship? You know, in the old church days, some of you have been Christians for a long time. You know that we used to refer to relations, the relational component of church as fellowship, right? That, that's kind of the church word we use, fellowship. The only problem is, is that that word, which has been a good word, has gotten incredibly watered down over the years, hasn't it? I mean, in most circles, all fellowship means, and tell me if this isn't true, is casual Christian acquaintances on Sunday morning and then times of eating throughout the week. That's what we mean by fellowship. So you're going to have fellowship with another Christian, which means you kind of casually know that person. Maybe if you're gutsy, you're in a Bible study with them, and then you're going to eat together. And that's what fellowship tends to mean. I hope today to add a bit more depth and meat to what we mean by fellowship. I'm not even going to use that term anymore because it's so overplayed. We're going to talk about relationality and authenticity and community when it comes to what God is after in us. So four key things uh, before we wrap up today. Four things that his word tells us about our relationality. Four markers, if you will, that define for you and me what rich and deep relationships from God's perspective entail. And the first one, you might have already guessed, because if you're looking at your outline, I know many of you try to fill in the blanks before I even get to them. And so you're like going, love, I know what this one is, but it's worth repeating because a lot of Christians struggle with this, is unconditional love. Can I repeat that? Unconditional love. If you brought a Bible with you today, and I hope you did, I want you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. We're going to do a lot of Bible or passage hopping today. This is more of a topical message. We're going to dig deep and look at a lot of different scriptures, but we're going to string it all together into a mosaic uh, of understanding authentic community. But look at what First Peter four eight tells us about love. This is rich. It says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers over a multitude of sins. Wow. There's a lot in there. Notice it begins by saying above all. If somebody says to you above all, duh, you know what they mean, right? Above all, be nice today. Above all, make sure you do your homework today. Above all, make sure you do this today. They're simply saying above everything else, the most important thing is that you do or hear what you're about to do or hear. So when Peter says above all, you and I need to tune in and say, he's about to say the most important thing. In all that he's ever written to us. And what does he say? Love one another earnestly. That that, that word love there is probably the most common Greek word, as far as Christians today knowing any Greek, that we all know it's the Greek word agape. I learned that word within like three months of becoming a Christian back in 1981. C.S. Lewis wrote a famous book called The Four Loves, in which he points out that this word agape, literally means unconditional love. Let's define that. Love with no strings attached. Not love because, not love if, but love period. It's a commitment word. It's a word in which says that God has so infected my life, he has so poured his grace out on me and freed me up and forgiven me in Jesus Christ that I now look at you And I say that no matter what you have done, no matter what you're doing right now, I have a rock solid commitment to you, to your welfare. I'm going to love you. I'm going to stay with you. And there's no conditions to it. It's a huge order, it's a tall order. And it's the kind of love that can conquer anything. In fact, I love how Peter says it. This is gutsy. He says, and you've got to believe some bristled when he first wrote this, it's the kind of love that can cover over a multitude of sins. What does he mean by that? But like what sins, Peter? A multitude of sins. Like sins against who? I think Peter means this personally. I think Peter means sins against you. I think he's saying love others deeply and earnestly with an agape kind of love because when you do, it's the kind of love that can even overlook all the sin that they've committed against you. Why? Because Christians are supposed to be really good at forgiving. You ever notice that? It's like what Easter is about, the cross, Good Friday. It's what the core of our salvation is, that God has forgiven us. And so we're to pass that grace on to those around us now. And that's what Peter's after here. He's saying love others with an agape kind of love unconditionally. They don't got to earn it. They they, they don't have to prove themselves to you. You just love them. And that's going to cover over even the sin that they commit against you. So what's the first thing that God's after in any relationship today that would be real for us? Well, duh, it's unconditional agape style love. Now, let me make two comments about this kind of love that should motivate us greatly, but will also kind of add a sobering aspect to this. And the two comments are this. Any of us who've experienced agape love know that it is very, very healing and it is very, very rare. Give me a head nod that you guys understand that. It's very, very healing. I mean, in, in, in the glimpse moments that I've had with God and then even on a human level with others, of being so embraced, so loved, so cared for, so realizing that no matter what I do, I can't repel people from me, those that love me. When I've had those moments, it is incredibly healing to my soul. I, I, I feel like I'm just almost in heaven. You know, psychologists tell us that that the greatest fear that humanity has is not a fear of heights or a fear of snakes or spiders or anything silly like that, though those are real fears. The core fear, the core terror of most human beings is the fear that if somebody truly knows you, they won't stay with you. It's the fear of being found out. It's the fear of somebody understanding what really is going on in our hearts and our minds and would we really be loved. And so when you really are loved, with an agape kind of love, It's incredibly healing, but sadly speaking, even though God's word says this should be like a staple in the church is what Christians be known for, it is very, very rare. I know I've told this story before, but it remains with me almost weekly because it's such a powerful picture, uh, I think, of what love looks like, if you can carry the analogy further. About eight years ago, Angela and Debbie Nichols were uh, mountain biking on a wilderness trail in Mission Vejo, California, when all of a sudden, true story, a 110-pound mountain lion sprang from the brush, pounced on Anne's back, Knocked her off the bike, grabbed her by the face, and started dragging her into the brush. Almost an unheard-of thing. Mountain lions don't usually do that. They're very afraid of human beings, but this one, for some reason, was very aggressive. Immediately at that moment, there were some other people there. Uh, Debbie jumped off her bike, and they she grabbed out of just desperation Ann's ankles. And as Anne was being dragged into the brush by this mountain lion, by the face, she grabbed her ankles and she kept saying to herself over and over and over again, as this tug of war was taking place, I'm never letting go. I am never letting go. Bystanders heard her say that. Uh, The people that were watching all this take place picked up rocks and threw it at the mountain lion trying anything to to get this cat to let go, but, but it wouldn't let go. And so later on at the hospital, look at what Debbie eventually said. She said, this guy, the cat, would not let go. He had a hold of her face. I just hold her. I'm never letting go. The authorities would say that because of her tenacity and hanging on to Ann's ankles, eventually the cat did give up. And because Debbie refused to let go, the cat did let go. And the story actually has a pretty good ending. I mean, you can find this anywhere on the Internet. And you give me another click here, you can see the picture of Anne today. She's still a beautiful young woman has gone through reconstructive surgery and is getting on with life. But what an amazing story. Now, now, now let's equate this story, if you will, uh, to your relationships on a spiritual level today. Uh, 1 Peter 5.8 says this, and this is a passage most Christians today in the western part of the world don't believe. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That passage is written to Christians. Do you all understand that? That's not written to the world. That's already under the evil one's control. There's no battle going on there. But but for believers in Jesus Christ, what the Bible says is that they got a target on their back every day. The stakes are now high. The flesh versus the spirit. Darkness versus light. Evil versus good. And the devil roars around, or prowls around like a roaring lion, looking to grab somebody by the face and drag them into the brush. And let's just be honest here today. We know that though we're going to win the war... Eventually, in heaven, there are many battles that even as Christians, we end up on the losing end of. So we give in to temptation at times. Our circumstances get the best of us. We have relational rifts that we just can't seem to heal. Our emotions careen out of control. Thoughts get obsessive. Are you with me, church? I mean, those are the realities that you and I, even as followers of Jesus Christ, face every day. And make no mistake, this is where most Christians are just so worldly, they don't get it. There's a spiritual battle behind all of that. There is personal evil vying for our souls. Forget about Al-Qaeda. There is personal evil vying for our souls every day, waging war against us as followers of God. And what the scriptures say is that there are going to be times where the evil one grabs us by the face and he won't let go as he drags us into the brush. So let me ask you a question. As you consider the relationships around you, those that you value, maybe it's people in your small group, maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a kid, maybe it's a ministry that you serve with. As you consider those relationships, who in your life does the evil one have by the face? Who in your life right now is going through a temptation, a circumstance, a relational riff, an emotion, a thought, That's just getting the better of them. And then the second question I have for you is, what is your commitment to them? What's your commitment to them that's going to make that relationship so real, so Jesus-like, that they will forever be changed because you grab them figuratively by the ankles and you say over and over again, even though Satan has you by the face, I'm not letting go. I'm never letting go of you. Are are you that kind of friend? Are you that kind of brother or sister to those around you? See, I think most of us have a fear of ever getting that close to somebody, of ever even trying to commit to somebody at that level. I mean, most marriages struggle at that level. And yet that's exactly the kind of friendship, relationship, brotherhood and sisterhood that the Scriptures are talking about here. It's love in the form of commitment that stays and sticks and it never lets go. And I'm telling you folks, I've seen more people changed and become the individuals that God wants them to be because of this kind of love than I ever have simply wrote discipline or a three-point sermon. I mean, I love to preach and I love to teach God's Word, but I'm under no illusion the power of your life and your ability to change and become what God wants you to be lies between you and him and then secondarily, but a close second, between you and the potential relationships around you. A sermon is just good information and a little bit of motivation. And you can get them all online nowadays. The real power, but I do suggest you come here. The real power (laughs) comes with each other. The real power comes... As you get honest with each other and start to love each other boldly in the name of Jesus Christ. That's the starting place, unconditional love. Now, more quickly, notice me a second component to real relationships. And again, this is one that you're never going to find in the world. Only within our Christian experience can you find this, and that is passionate spirituality. Passionate spirituality. Simply put, This is the kind of relationality, now don't miss this, that doesn't just view another person from an earthly, human, fleshly standpoint, but it's the kind of relationality that has a passionate spiritual vision for the other person to become all they can be in Jesus Christ. It's an amazing thing that you have to offer somebody around you. So maybe for those of you who are theologically minded, look at it this way. It involves you not just seeing somebody from a creation standpoint made in the image of God, which we should see everybody from, but it involves you seeing somebody from a redemptive standpoint, getting a vision for the redemptive potential in their life as they follow Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 3.15 says, "But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Romans 12.11 says, Be fervent on fire in spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5.19 says, Don't quench the spirit. Or like how another translation puts it. It says, Don't put out the spirit's fire. It's all saying the same thing. God wants you and I to maintain a zeal and passion for him, keeping our first love alive. It's passionate spirituality that God is after in us. And think about it, folks. It would only make sense that if this makes God's A-list for you and I when it comes to Him, then certainly He'd want us to have the same commitment to each other. That when we're in real relationship with each other, we got a vision for what we can become in Jesus Christ. I did something this week that I call a James 5.16 moment. And if you have read the Bible? James 5.16 says, confess your sins to one another so that you may be healed. Again, most Protestants aren't really good at that. We're not good at confessing our sins to one another. We think it's just between God and I. But the scriptures tell us to take some risk and confess your stuff to each other in safe environments, and it will be healing to you. So I messed up on Monday. I did something I wasn't proud of. And on Wednesday, I walked into one of the pastor's offices here as I've wrestled for a couple days with what I did. And I confessed my sin to him. And now before I, I, I go any further, I want to tell you two things about the particular sin I'm talking about. The first one is I'm not telling you what it was. And the reason is, is because it's personal. And obviously, if it was hard enough for me to confess it to a fellow pastor, there's no chance I'm sharing it with you guys. But the second thing I want you to know, before you run wild with this, is that it's nothing that would disqualify me from ministry. So don't be thinking things like that. Don't be thinking sexual things. Don't be thinking that, you know, I mean, just don't don't allow that to get into your mind. I'll tell you this much. It had to do with the way that I treated somebody. I I treated somebody in an inappropriate, I don't think Christ-honoring way. And though I tried to make amends and I did confess it to God, it was still hanging with me. And when a sin like that still hangs with you, God says not confess it to somebody else. So that's what I did on Wednesday. And it felt good. On Saturday, I was with this pastor again just yesterday. And we were doing a project at my house. And at one point when we were driving to Home Depot, he just casually brought up this sin that I confessed to him. And that's always unnerving, isn't it? Like after four days, you know, you're like, oh, I let it go. Why are you hanging with this thing, you know? And so he casually brings it up to me. And I was going, yeah, of course, I remember what I shared with you on Wednesday. And then he said this. He blew me away. He said, well, I was thinking about it. And I go, well, that's obvious. I was thinking about it. And he said, it hit me that one of the reasons I think God allows you to go through things like this, Jamie, even though they're very humbling, is because I think it keeps you really dependent on him. He said, I think that the reason he allows you to mess up on a human level, even to the point that it's kind of embarrassing and that you have to confess it to others is because it keeps you so broken and humble before him and in that way dependent on him. I thought right at that moment, I thought, I wish everybody in our church had a friend like that. I wish everybody in our church had a friend that they could go be their confessor and just be really honest with, even in the midst of all the shame and how, and how it makes you feel kind of vulnerable. But then four, day late, four days later, realize that person's been thinking about your spiritual welfare and even what God might be up to in your life. You can't buy friendships like that. It only comes through what God brings into our lives. And my guess is if you're saved here today, if you've, if you've done business with God through Christ, He has somebody in your life, his relationships around you that have that kind of potential that can incorporate a passionate spirituality. Third thing that God wants that makes our relationship real. And this one I got to breeze through because we have some other things to do and we're about out of time is felt unity, felt unity. So I'm not just talking about the fact that we're unified in Christ, but we're unified to such a degree that you feel it, I feel it, and even lost people, that happen to get with us, feel it. So Ephesians 4.3 says, Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Jesus, in his high priestly prayer in John 17, verse 21, says, I pray that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. So it seems pretty clear. God wants his bride to be very unified. He wants us to be for each other, so unified in love and purpose that we all feel it deeply in our bones. And what a challenge to each other. I think one of the biggest tragedies today in the evangelical church, and I'm not talking about this church, but just the church in America, I guess, would be the fact that we are so good at sabotaging unity. I mean, God gives us an initial thing of unity with another person or even together as a church, and what do we do? We gossip, we backbite, we engage in factions, which just simply means we get with a small group of people and start talking about another small group of people. And I even see it here at Scottsdale Bible Church, and it just makes me so sad. I mean, I know this is going on in our church right now, that we ignore people, even in this church that we don't like. We talk about them to other people. We secretly wish that they'd go to another church. We're bummed that they have our emails. I mean, I see this stuff throughout the week. And all I'm here to say, folks, is that God says this should not be so. And that you're going to have to get along with them in heaven, so you might as well learn now. And I know what some of you are saying right now. You're saying, well, Jamie, you don't know my particular situation, it's very difficult. Guess what? I do get that. There are people right now, again, I couldn't share it with you because it's very confidential. There's people right now in my sphere of relationship that I have sandpaper relationships with, and that it's not going well. Some of you know me, go, We get that. But it's just very difficult. (laughs) And I'm sure I'm partly to blame, but you know what? I'm blind to it. I mean, if I knew about it, don't you think I'd work on it? I mean, I'm blind to these things. And so I have conflict with people around me too. But one thing I strive to do if my relationships are going to be real is that when I have conflict, even if I was the one who messed up, I go right to that person. I go right to that person. And I try to say, I'm sorry I messed up. Let's try to have unity in this. In fact, I called a person this week. you saying, well, you've had a rough week. I called a person this week that I've had conflict with for four years who doesn't live in this area. And we had a great conversation, you know, and you guys get this. We couldn't even address the issue yet. You ever had that happen? I just called him and said, how you doing? Da, da, da. We kind of danced around the issue. And how's your wife? How's your kids? And we caught up. And then I said at the end of the conversation, I really miss you. And I love you. And I think we need to talk more often. And he sent me an email saying, yes, we should. We haven't addressed the issue yet. We're not ready to, but but we will. Why? Because we're brothers in Christ and we're committed to unity is what makes relationships real. And then, one final thing, and then we're going to end on kind of a glorious note here. The fourth component to real relationships is authentic relating. <laughs> authentic. Not church, you got to hear this one. By authentic, I simply mean honest, transparent, and revealing. Simply put in the negative, If you hide from others around you, you'll never have a deep relationship with them. We all know that. And yet ever since the garden, humanity, ever since the fall, is really good at hiding. But we hide because of our shame. We do bad things, but we're shamed about who we are. We don't want others to see it. And so we hide. And until you can learn to get honest with those around you and take the risk to be honest. And you know what I'm talking about then you'll never have real relationships that need authentic community. Romans 12.9 nails it. It says, "Love, let love be genuine. That word genuine literally means real, honest, not fake. In Acts 2.46, as it's describing the first church, it says that they broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. I've taught you guys this before, but that word simplicity of heart simply means an open heart, an honest heart before another person. So picture the first century church just having a meal together and just being honest with each other about their successes, their failures, their struggles, their successes, all this stuff together. And what does this mean for you and I today? What well, it means is we speak the truth in love, as Ephesians 4.15 says. We just come clean and get honest with each other. But We have a place to be ourselves, a place to tell our story and to take the risk to finally be honest with those around us. I've been doing this so long because I'm just so committed to this that I can remember once a few years back I was at a famous Willow Creek Community Church at a pastor's conference, and Larry crab who was a friend of mine, asked me and a guy that I was in a small group with in Cleveland to, to come and share a testimony in front of 2,000 pastors about honesty and authenticity. And we got up in front of 2,000 pastors, and we shared our experiences of just getting gut-level honest about our lives with each other. And then Larry took over after about 10 minutes, and he looked at these 2,000 pastors, and he said, here's the deal. He said, studies show that the vast majority of you have secrets that you've never told anybody. The vast majority of you have hidden lives that you feel shameful about. That you dare not tell anybody else. And he said, Your only goal between now and when you die is to get honest with another person or another group of people. And you know what told me Larry nailed it? Is that you could just hear a pin drop at that moment. Have you ever been in a setting where you know somebody has so nailed the situation that nobody, I mean, nobody, they didn't even dare move in that moment? And yet, what a great challenge he gave. And what a great challenge to you and I to just get honest in order to have real relationships. God's looking for a beautiful bride. He's looking for a functional body of Christ. What you need to hear today is that one of the key components to making us beautiful and functional in a sight is the ability to relate authentically and real with each other. It's gonna take you being unconditional in your love. It's gonna take you uh, having the kind of unity that others feel. It's going to take you being passionate about each other on a spiritual level. And it's going to take a level of authenticity that might even make you uncomfortable. But the result of this is nothing less than that sweet spot that we're all looking for when it comes to being in the center of God's will and following him. I want to call up a friend of mine right now to the stage. I know that you clock watchers are going. You've got one minute left. We're going to go just a little long today, all right? I love it. My, my pastor in, in, in Detroit that I cut my teeth under for nine years when I first came pastor, whenever we'd when go over, he used to always say, don't you have 15 more minutes for the truth? We'd be like, well, how are you can argue with that? But anyways, I'm not that bold. But I would say just give me a few more minutes to wrap this up by introducing you to a friend of mine that I, I want just to share a little bit about what this stuff looks like in action. And so, Paul, why don't you come up here right now and just give your appreciation for Paul uh, Wagner here. Some of you guys know Paul Wagner. He's been in our church for about a decade. He's a professor of Old Testament, isn't that daunting, at uh, Phoenix Seminary. He's got a PhD from the University of London. He's writing a commentary right now for the famous Tyndale commentary on Isaiah. I mean, he's written books that are read all over the world. Paul is a Sunday school teacher here in our church. He and his wife, Kathy, have been with us for 12 years now, right? And, and and Paul is just known throughout this community as just a wonderful, joyful man. In fact, when I first met him five years ago, he was smiling like he is right now. And every time I saw him, he was smiling, and it can you know can grate on you after a while. And so I I said to his wife Kathy, I said, Does he wake up like this? And she said, Yeah, every morning. I mean, it's just like a contagious joy that this guy has. And I wanted to get to know him. And after about a year of getting to know Paul in this church, I invited him to be a part of the small group that I'm in, of of peers. It's a small group of of four other men that I meet with every week that I can share my life with honestly, that they can take it, and that we journey together in life. And so for the last three or four years, Paul's been in a small group with me. And and I just wanted him to share a little bit of what that's been like and how it's been even life-changing for you as we apply these things. So first, just tell us a little bit about uh, you and what you're doing and you know, just what led you up to this point.
1: Um, I, st- well, I started at Trinity uh, teaching Hebrew, and I, and I enjoyed when, when the light would go on in somebody's eyes, I knew they had learned something, and I knew that that really excited me. So that's why I wanted to become a teacher. And so that's that's where it all started from anyway.
0: And then you went on to Moody, Bible Institute, where you taught. Yes. And then a decade here at Phoenix Seminary. Yes. Yeah. So here you are, a theology professor of Old Testament. You are, are teaching students just left and right. I mean, you're an expert on the Word of God. And then you get invited to be in a small group. Uh, tell us about that. Had you ever been in a small group like this before, and why did you accept it and all that stuff?
1: Um, no, I'd, I had never been in a, a small group like this before. Um, I had friends and stuff like that, but nothing as deep and as meaningful as what we've got. Um, and, and I guess the reason I accepted it is because I knew I needed it. Uh, so I knew that was a re- something. But I also... I. Uh, even at the very beginning, I trusted these guys. And when I, when I decided I want to join the group, I already had a, a level of trust in them. And that helped me then to be able to share the kind of things we so, wanted so to share. So you
0: looked around you and, and said, you know, who are these guys asking me to join? And you looked at their lives and all that and said, I can at least enter in with an initial level of trust. Yeah. You know, people ask me all the time, what do we do in our small group? You know, and I know that, that our wives are. are you know, insatiably curious as to what we do and talk about in our small group. And um, why, why don't you just share with these guys what what do we do and how would you describe it?
1: Yeah, as I was thinking about what it was, I think it's soul care because what we'll do, we'll start off. Probably the first thing we'll do is we'll we'll go around the group and just say, "What's happened in the last week? We've been gone for a week. Surely there's been things that have bothered you, or you're learning, or something like that." So that's kind of the first. Uh, a couple of minutes of just getting to know what's happened with each other. And then uh, usually there's either something that God's been teaching us or something that's bothered us we need some discussion on and need somebody else's else's input on. And then uh, usually we pray about it. And if it's something that's really bothering us, it's nice to have four other men there praying with you on a specific topic. And I can remember one time when we were going some, through some difficulties with our, with our children, and that's always going to happen. Um, it was just really great to have four other guys praying with me about my kids. And that was just, that was just meaningful for and, me. And two of the
0: rules that we have are kind of unwritten, but is that one, if you're not going to be honest, then don't come. I mean, you know, you've got you to be upfront. We've got to be as honest as we can. And then absolute confidentiality. And, and so anything that we talk about on our group just doesn't go further. What's interesting about our group, though, is that we don't have an intense Bible study, though sometimes we crack the book and apply the word. We, we, we don't read a book. We don't have preset questions. This isn't like the un-game for you know, a men's group. This is, this is just us bringing, like Larry Crabb calls it, the red dot to the table. You've gone to the mall before, and you know the red dot on the map says you are here. So our only rule is where are you? Uh, On a spiritual level today, and we got to bring that to the table, and then allow God to do what He does. And Paul, answer this question: As as we engage in that week week in and week out, how has it changed you? I mean, you never had here you are a professor of theology, and now three years had this experience. How has it changed you?
1: I had never had this kind of in depth relationship. I now know that when I'm going through something, I have four men that will stand behind me and help me. Go through it. I've never had that. That is something that is so rare that now that I have it, I don't ever want to not have it. Yeah.
0: And yet, yep, you guys can clap at that. And yet, you have two Sundays left and then you're moving. Yes. And you're moving out of the area. Yes. You're leaving us. Yes. And we tried to talk you out of this in February because yeah, again, it's yeah. a good small group. We had his best interest in mind. And so we. Uh, <laughs> When when, when Paul brought us into this idea that he's been quartered by another seminary called Golden Gate Baptist Theological Seminary in in San Francisco, and he's now going to have the opportunity to teach doctoral students, and you really felt led to do this, and uh, yeah. yeah. I can still remember that in February when Paul came back from an investigative trip there and I just, you know, I was still, I mean, I had my list read, you're not going, you're staying here, God's not done with you, you know, and, you know, Jamie loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, all that stuff, and so, and Paul just looked at us across the table and he said, "Um, God spoke to me this past week, and and he told me that we're going to San Francisco, Mm -hmm. and, passionate spirituality. I'm not getting in the way of that. And, uh, and so we've been grieving that, but we're also very excited for you. And our prayer for you is that as you uh, leave here in a couple of weeks, that you and Kathy is that God would lift up great fellowship for you and all of that. And uh, we're going to pray for you in just a second here. Uh, Kathy, why don't you come on up? Um, and what we'd like to do is we close our service today. Let me just make a quick comment to you guys about this. I know when we uplift a small group experience like this, some of you are saying, well, I don't think I could ever have that. I I think you can. I really do. I I think you you just got to take some risks. Try to get with some other believers you trust. Just start sharing your life authentically with them. Pray about it, that God would lift this up. If it doesn't work the first time, uh, that's okay. I remember I started a men's group at Bob Evans in uh, Solon, Ohio, when I was pastoring in Cleveland, where all the spiritual things happened in Cleveland. <laughs> Bob Evans. And, you know, we tried to knit our hearts together, and it just—it just, it was like a 747 with like 10 feet of runway left, and we hadn't gotten off the ground, and this thing was going to crash. And I just pulled the plug and said, you know what? Let's just save the relationships, and let's just not go any further with this thing. Did I feel like a failure? Yeah, but you know what? I I then approached another group of men and that one clicked better. And so that's okay uh, to to just say, God, you know, give me that depth because we can all have this kind of relationality. Kathy and Paul, um, we love you guys. And we are so grateful that you have... Taught us for 12 years in Sunday school. Paul leads one of the premier Sunday school classes here at our church. You've taught many of our seminary students. We have a real close tie to the seminary. And Kathy, you've sat on nominating committees for elders and helped us choose wisely the men who are in leadership here. And you've served in so many other ways. So we wanted to pray for you right now and just thank you for all that you mean to us. And also we have a gift for you. And basically what the gift is is I went out and we got them a bunch of um, just gift cards for a major airline uh, so that they can have some travel miles. And the reason we did that is a self-serving purpose so that you would visit us often. So, yeah. We... We chose an airline that has a direct flight between Phoenix and San Francisco. So that's it. That's when, and, and God has told us you can only use it for that. So, yeah. No, I'm teasing. So would you all bow with me right now, and let's uh, pray for the Wagners as we close our service. Father God, um, as you have taught so many of us, it is a really beautiful thing when you put us in harness with a group of other people. And Lord, in a church this size, you know that part of our motto is, is that the bigger we get, the smaller we want to become. We want to give us all an opportunity to experience real relationships that produce authentic community. And so God, I pray and thank you for Paul and Kathy and how you have just done that work of grace in their lives and that you've touched so many through their love and faith that they have in Jesus and their love for other people. And God, I thank you that you've allowed Paul to have three, four good years with some men here in this church and to influence so greatly. And God, our prayer for them would be that uh, your richest blessing would go upon them. Certainly give them travel mercies, protect them as they enter into a new environment there north of San Francisco. Lord, we pray you continue to use them, bless them. Watch their boys as their boys stay back here in the Phoenix area. And Lord, just continue to guide them as you would have them. And God, we pray that we would hear good things about how you continue to use them in building your kingdom and in affecting others on a relational and even, for Paul, academic level. And so, God, we thank you for our church. We thank you for all that you're doing. Uh, for, Lord, for the rest of us, we go now in the name of your Son, Christ, thanking you for our time together in worship and in teaching. And now, Lord, even looking forward to richer times in smaller group environments with other believers. And we pray these things in Christ's name.
1: Amen. Thank you. All right.